the ability for a woman to trust her body, to trust her holy knowing, and to reside in that confidence and not let all of the societal pressure that we all engage with on different levels and in different ways. The only way you go wrong is when you succumb to those outside pressures. There's no gatekeeper between me and my holy knowing. Only the stuff that I throw in front of it. Welcome to Messy and Magnificent, the place driven women come to elevate their career, health, and relationships. In here, we increase your productivity by replacing always being busy with the space to breathe. Hear your own wisdom and be part of a sisterhood that has your back. My name is Carly Fain, and together we're going to make sure that you have a doable plan and the roots to rise. Hey, it's Carly. Okay, tell me if any of this is relatable. You ever find yourself thinking about things like, oh gosh, I wish I had more space in my day for myself, or I want more room to be creative. I want to be creating things like I used to, or I just want room to breathe. I want some unscheduled time. Or maybe like a lot of my clients and audience members, you're asking questions about what do I do in this situation? I mean, how do I know what the right answer is? And I love when you all bring me those kind of questions on social media or you send me a private message. I love helping you figure out what's true for you. And I wanted to give you a little behind the scenes about something where I really had to figure out what was true for me and for our organization as a preface to today's very special interview with somebody who I just adore. So we run, I run a program called the Reclaiming Time Studio, and this is a group coaching program and We launch it twice a year. It's six months long. So we begin in January and then we begin a second class of it in July. And we love that schedule. That was our plan for this year. However, with the advent of COVID and all the changes this has meant economically and personally, professionally for a lot of my clients, the women in the existing Reclaiming Time studio were having massive breakthroughs, huge growth, just fell in love with each other, are loving it. And we're asking if there was any way we could continue to renew. How could we do more together? They didn't want it to end at its scheduled time in June. They said, we want more. And that felt so good. So I said, yes. So now our plan is, okay, great. We're going to have two classes. We're going to have this brand new renewal class. And well, then of course, we'll have our second normal class of the Reclaiming Time Studio. Myself, my team, we mapped the whole thing out, really excited about it, ready to rock and roll. And about three weeks before it was time for the new class to begin, I woke up one morning and my entire body said, no, no, you can't do this. Now is not the time to bring in a new class, Carly. Now is time to be even more present with your existing clients. You see, we've always asked ourselves this question. How can we as an organization be continue to grow with integrity, without watering down our work, with still being fully present to our clients? And I realized that in bringing in a new class at the same time we were creating a renewal class that I would be spreading my energy too thin and I don't want everybody to get a watered down version. We're the real deal here. Now, my brain went through all of the normal hoopla (laughs) once my body told me that maybe we shouldn't open the doors at its normal time. My brain said things like, oh my gosh, you've put so much time and energy into mapping this out. You're going to have to do it all over again. Or... What if people are disappointed that we changed the start date? So all of my fears of other people are going to respond to me are, are, are cropping up. And while all this is happening, my body is still saying, but Carly, what is true is being present. 
What is true is going deeper with those who are already on the journey with you before you bring in new people. And so we made the executive decision to postpone the enrollment for the new class. So, hey, friendly message. If you've already applied, then you already know this. We've already had a private conversation about it. But if you haven't applied yet to be in the Reclaiming Time studio, head on over to carlyfain.com, click the Reclaiming Time button, see what it's all about. If you are a career-driven woman, this might be the place for you. But I share all this not to give an ad placement for the Reclaiming Time studio. I share this because learning how to communicate with my body and the information it gives me has been a tremendous professional strategy. It has always led to my biggest wins. And conversely, every time my body tries to tell me not to do something because it'll get a headache or it gets tight or it feels constricted or I feel exhausted by an idea, even if it's good on paper, when I ignore that information... I'm always disappointed that I do. And this is why I have invited a very special guest to today's podcast. Because if you find yourself wanting more space for who you are in your day, you want more room to be creative, or you're having doubt or worry and wondering about what the next right step is for you, then I want you to meet one of my favorite human beings, Susie Banksbaum. Now, Susie is a writer, she's a mixed media and book artist, and she is an incredibly important friend of mine. She has this devotion to daily creative practice. It's kind of like her superfood for the signature teachings that she does. She does this backyard art camp, which you'll hear us talk about, as well as the powder keg writing sessions for women and the Advent Dark Journal. She travels all the way to Gimari, Armenia every year to teach the book arts to women artists there. So not only does she do the work in literally her own backyard, but she is finding ways to empower other women around the world. She often teaches for the International Women's Guild. And if you are aware that you feel driven, you might really appreciate an aha that I had in this upcoming conversation with Susie, because it occurred to me that I always think of myself as working with driven women But what if we don't want to be driven anymore? (laughs) Meaning, what if we don't want to feel forced into having to push harder by some external force? What if rather than being driven, we want to be the ones doing the driving? Well, if you find some version of doubt knocking on your door on a regular basis, listen in for the deeply nourishing framework that Susie gives for us women to return from doubt back to our knowing. So thank you, Susie, so much for being here on Messy and Magnificent with us. My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. I know that on the podcast, and not everybody can see this, I have the pleasure we're doing this over Zoom. And Susie looks like she is is set on a stage of her office. (laughs) It's got these beautiful curtains behind her. She's got lights strung up. I was saying to Susie before we officially started that it looks like you're in a nest. Mm-hmm. It looks like you're in your own, you know, a nest of your own, of your own creating. Mm-hmm. And that just seems fitting for the way Susie is in the world. She really dwells at this crossroads of literary and visual arts and something that for me personally, I'll speak for myself, Susie, has always felt like coming home. When I'm with you, I feel like I am home. And I've had the pleasure of being a student of Susie's um, in her powder keg writing workshop for, for years. But that's something about being a student of living with you, just as your friend. When we're outside making mandalas together or we're eating waffles in your backyard. (laughs) And so, you know, I'll, I'll share this for everybody out there. 
And then I've got a couple questions for you, Susie. But Susie and I and her husband, Jonathan, we started this informal practice during this time of, of sheltering at home during COVID, where we just hop on Zoom once a week, every Friday, three o'clock, we've been hopping on, we've been having our high dry rocks conversation. And so I thought we could bring some high dry rocks and we'll explain what that means in a moment here to, mm. to the podcast, because who doesn't need something sturdy to step on right now? Yeah. So thank you, Susie, for being here. My pleasure. And thank you for being a high dry rock in my life. <laughs> well, so should we explain what that means? When oh. I think that was your phrase. I think you said high dry rocks and I said, I've got to write that down. Hold on. Yeah. Um, what were we talking about? What was that in reference to? Well, that, that really arose early in quarantine, like, like almost right away when you and I both realized that things were shifting very quickly. And I had to make some very strong decisions about my business, about what I was about to teach and what I would be teaching in the near future and using this, you know, this is early March and I, in early March, I'm, I'm moving away from my sort of deep winter writing mode into preparing for and then marketing my summer and fall teaching and projects which requires a great deal of energy and time and planning and goodness. But it was pretty immediately clear that I wouldn't be returning to the Ramsdale Public Library where we have our Power to Keg writing workshop every Wednesday right. night. And I very strongly felt the need to provide that small group of people with some kind of oasis of creative practice some kind of gathering. And I knew that I wouldn't be teaching the class I was supposed to teach in April or in May or maybe the summer. So I felt like, you know, I, I had this really, really strong image. Like you, I've spent a lot of time in the woods, a lot of time hiking, crossing rivers. And I had this, I was writing about this and I had this image of crossing the Yellow Dog River in this beautiful track of land in the Upper Peninsula with a couple of my friends. We were on a retreat and we were hiking to this specific place and we had to cross the river and it was a chilly enough day that we didn't want to get our boots wet. We just kept looking for the high dry rocks and it, it struck me that at a time when we don't know what's coming down the river, you know, with COVID, with our businesses, with public and social interaction, all of those things, so holding a powder keg writing workshop online on Zoom felt like a high dry rock. Not a long-term solution, but an immediate solution that would allow me to cross the river one step at a time. And it, I knew that, as you know, my daughter Catherine was a senior in college and she was in the process of completing a very dense, deep writing um, for her senior thesis. And suddenly she was without her access to the library, access to the work settings that really supported her writing. So I thought, well, this could be a high dry rock for her. And as it is in my work all the time, I figure if it's good for me, it's probably good for someone else. If I'm hungry and yearning for this, someone else is too. And as you know, that's how the high dry rocks came to be that the powder keg was, we ran that for nine weeks and we had over 
180 people registered. And every week we had about 50 to 60 people. And I heard from people that it was a, it was a place for them to feel solid during a week, whether they were working or at home taking care of children or suddenly at home and not able to engage in their regular activities. This provided, I mean, I'm sure your listeners can imagine, even when you're crossing a wet street and you're walking around puddles, you're looking for that higher, drier place to move. And and to me, that physical image just really allowed me to make decisions using that as a guide. One of the many things I'm appreciating about, you know, this, this visual is, is twofold. One of them is what you just said in that when you chose the high dry rock for yourself, it brought about an opportunity for other people that you work with to also have their own high dry rock. So when you listening to what felt true for you, knowing, okay, there's some change that needs to happen here. Obviously, you know, my traditional business model, which would be to bring this, you know, workshop in an in-person setting isn't applicable right now. What feels true for me right now? Okay, I can pivot this online. And that that brought a similar feeling for those who were able to show up. Mm -hmm. And I think, Susie, a lot about how I was just mentioning that we, myself as a coach, I'm on the mailing list of a lot of coaches, right? Like I see, I get a lot where I'm and, you know, social media has figured out the algorithm that I'm a coach. And I get a lot of posts, you know, from coaches, paid ads showing up in my feed. And when COVID first happened, there was such an immediate marketing frenzy around this idea that we have to do a fast pivot. We have to make a quick pivot. How are you going to pivot your business to handle this big change? And I know for me personally, and we did a whole episode about it, I felt a lot of pressure to make quick changes, you know, and have quick solutions but I've never been the quick fix gal. That's not my bag. (laughs) I don't do quick fixes. I'm like, I'm in this for a lifetime for myself and with my people. And so I watched you as your friend create this mindful pivot. Like it wasn't just a quick pivot. There was this, this intentionality behind it. And I remember, maybe we can talk for a moment about your, your backyard art camp. Because I know that that was another pit that, that had to happen. This is a, you know, a part of your business that you've done for years. And that anybody who follows me on social media, they've seen me talk about Backyard Art Camp because I come as a student. But I would love to talk a little bit about how do you go about making these changes? So you, how did you sense, like just on a physical level, how did you know when it was time to modify the way you would be offering powder keg? Like, how does that information come to you or through you? How do you know when it's time to pivot a direction? I have really clear sense of, this is going to sound super duper corny, but Jonathan and I, early in our life, um, before we had kids, but when we were on the verge of having our first child, Ben, who's going to be 26 this year, I often felt like I was about to lay an egg and I had to find a nest. Like I had to find this place. And there was this, I mean, I've never laid an egg. I don't know what it (laughs) feels like, but I do know that feeling of urgency. Like, it's not like having to go to the bathroom. It's not like that. It's like this, like, like, um, my, I'm not able to breathe. Well, I'm not able to bring myself all the way back to center, all the way back to this sort of clear, place that I can get to in meditation or in my daily writing. I, because I see these 
I keep coming to rocks, but, you know, I keep seeing these obstacles that this isn't flowing. This isn't one thing's not leading to another here. I get some pretty strong cues from my environment, from the people I work with. And as I paid close attention to myself and my body, it's not like I was losing sleep. That's a different thing. But I just couldn't feel wholly good. I was prohibited from going through with powder keg in the real, you know, in the right. But I felt very drawn to making a solution that would feel really right for me. But I really didn't, I couldn't imagine it until I recognized that I can make a different choice here. What are the elements that are really important for me? Regular, visual, literary, poetry. Want to involve my sisterhood, you know, having guests like Holly Ren Spaulding or Rowan White or Desiree Cooper, like all of those elements that I pull into any experience, that, you know, any experience that I create in a workshop or teaching setting. I am not settled and I feel an urgency to settle. And so mm-hmm. my body just is like, you know, we've got to find a place here. We've got to find the rock. We've got to find the. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. Well, because tell me if I'm getting this right, but it sounds like I heard like a three-step process here. I heard my body is communicating to me the sense of urgency. I don't feel settled, but I would like to feel settled, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like number one. It's like, I don't feel settled, but I would like to feel settled. And then I heard you ask a question. The question was, how could I do this differently? Mm -hmm. And then answers started to arrive. Well, okay, well, I know what's important to me is that it be visual, that it be literary, that it be poetic, that, you know, my sisterhood would be involved, that it would feel steady. So it's this sense of, I'm not feeling settled, but I'd like to be. Mm -hmm. How could I do this differently? What do I value? Right, exactly. That sounds like, like you're like Susie, you know, Susie Beebe's like three-step, right, way. But I'm noticing that it, and you and I talk about this a lot, that it originated physically within your body. Yeah. That there was a physical sensation and, and everyone's different, right? We all feel things differently. But just for you, what does it physically feel like in your body when something's not settled, when something doesn't feel like it's settled? I can feel almost ill. I can actually feel not headachy, but like my lungs don't expand to the, you know, I, I do physically, I, I have a very old habit of making myself smaller because I'm a big person and I have this habit of drawing in and, you know, I feel it in my pectorals. Like I just start to pull in and there's this contraction. Do you mind if we talk for a moment about this body knowing? Is this an Oh, please, <laughs> please. Because you have some great, some great ways of explaining the body knowing in a great phrase. Yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, as is probably obvious to your, to your listeners, I am a very strong feminist. I have been steeped from my early life in high school when I first started really reading beyond kind of middle school you know, reading and reading newspapers and and what was happening in the early 70s. And I have been aware of the ways women have been silenced from the time that I was sort of first really socially aware. And I've studied and learned and listened from a lot of different people. And I understand, I witness it in the powder keg. I witness it in myself. 
how often we would rather close our mouth. I'm not going to include my story. I'm not going to let myself be vulnerable here. Here, I might cry. Whether you're in a professional setting or you're in an intimate setting, women have been enculturated for centuries to sit on your story. It's not included here. We're not part of history. Our stories are not recorded. We are not listed in, you know, the New York Times is just kind of waking up now in the last year to the women we've lost over years and years of obituaries that were never listed. If you only looked at the New York Times for until about, you know, three months ago, you would just think that men died in the mm-hmm. United States, except for the few rock stars. So that quality is so embedded in us that what we feel in our bodies, when we feel our, our instinctive, holy knowing, as I call it, my holy knowing, when I feel that it is a step toward liberation for myself and for every woman, every person I work with, man, man or woman, the ability for a woman to trust her body and to reside in that confidence and not let all of the societal pressure that we all engage with on different levels and in different ways, when you get sent back to that holy knowing, whether it's through a really mindful, aware decision-making process in which you set some really clear boundaries for yourself, or you make a decision for your business or for your relationship or just for yourself and the way you handle your days, once you start paying attention to that, The only way you go wrong is when you succumb to those outside pressures. And whether it's from my friend who wants me to do something that I know I really don't want to do. And yet I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, I really don't want to disappoint her or whatever. Or I'm supposed to go teach at this craft school in a setting that just does not feel right for me. And and that no keeps coming up in my body and my body's like, it is a no. Sue's, it's a no. And I argue with it for three or four days, talk to other people. I do all of those things, you know. And then when I wake up in the morning on the day, I'm supposed to be clear about it. And my body's like, my answer is still the same. This is not a good decision for you. You know, I know this is something that you talk about a lot, but I think that there are so many pressures on women to distrust our holy knowing. And the practices that you and I both engage in on a really regular habit are the things that send us into that holy knowing without a gatekeeper. There's no gatekeeper between me and my holy knowing. Only the stuff that I throw in front of it, you know, expectations, projections, fear, all of that. As you both, we both know, we will throw all kinds of challenges and obstacles in front of that holy knowing. Oh, yeah. I will doubt it. I will reason <laughs> myself out of it. I'll come up with 75 other solutions that don't rely on my knowing. But when I come back to it, oh my gosh, Carly. You know, when I come back, like, like I was describing to you earlier, this decision that I had to make today, there was so much a part of me wanted to say yes to this particular invitation that I had. And yet my holy knowing was such a clear no. And I was willing, I was really looking for ways to circumvent my holy knowing. 
Can we get, I, I love talking about this part of it because this is the realness of it, right? Like yeah, we, exactly. You and I, we cultivate our holy knowing on a regular basis. And yet there's this other part that gets very convincing in the moment oh. of oh, how could I, right? How could I work around that? Um, well, so what were some of your thoughts? What were some of like the funny thoughts bubbling up that were telling you, uh, uh, ignore, ignore what you know to be true? How does well, that show up? I was so sure that if I said no to this particular invitation to teach at a certain school in which it really didn't feel like the right thing for me to do at the end of this August in 2020, mm -hmm. but I wanted to force myself to think that I could avoid the complications that probably would arise. And I wanted to forget all the learning that I have had about similar situations in the past. I have a lot of reference points. And yet my mind is like, oh, forget that. Forget that. That body of learning doesn't matter. We can make this decision so much better. You know, like, like I'm not going to rely on my, my experience. Okay. So then I'm out on thin ice, right? Then I'm like, so, so that's one of the things I like to do. I like to really spend a lot of time thinking about what other people are going to think about my decision. And I just, you know this, right? That, we well, I relate to it. I relate to it. And, I, and a lot of the women that I work with relate to it as well. This idea of who am I going to disappoint? You know, what if I disappoint them? What if they, and I'm not saying this is how you felt, but what yeah. if they don't like me anymore? What if they thinking I'm being a B word, I'm being unreasonable, or I'm asking too much, or I'm changing the, the, the agreement? Well, yeah. you were talking with Nancy about this. And that conversation really helped me because I am a very, you know, my first career is in the theater. I am very good at inventing dialogue. I can... <laughs> project what they will say when I say no and all the ways they're going to turn me away and never call me again. And the word will get out that I'm not trustworthy or not serious about my profession or whatever it is I decide to invent. I'll have that conversation in my head. You know, I learned long ago, actually I learned this in Al-Anon. If you're having a conversation with somebody who's not in the room, <laughs> you really need to take a break. Oh, there's the phrase. Okay, so if you're having a conversation with somebody who's not in the room, it's time to step back for a moment. Yes. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And that makes me think. I do that m multiple times a day. I'm having a conversation with somebody in the moment. And it's often about, it's, you know, it's interesting. I'm having an aha. It's often around a boundary. And sometimes it's retroactive in that I'm thinking of, oh, I should have said it this way. I wish I had said it this other way. Like in hindsight, I could see, you know, so I'm having the imaginary conversation. I'm making it the way I wish it had gone if I had listened to my holy knowing. Yes. Your phrase, right? Like if I had listened to my holy knowing, I would have said this. If I wasn't worried about hurting their feelings, I would have said this. Everywhere you go, there is the weaving of community. There is this connection that I think reinforces the idea that we can listen to ourselves. I think about it like speak, learning to speak a new language. You know, we learn mm -hmm. to speak as who we really are, as ourselves, who we've always been. But if we don't get to practice that with other native speakers who are also speaking their truth, we yeah. start to forget the words, right? It's easy in a culture where we're taught to not listen to ourselves, to inadvertently, you know, unconsciously begin to default to the requests of others or default to the behavior patterns that other people are doing. Well, Carly, isn't that the description of doubt? Oh. What you just described is 
you're carrying around this facility with with language as you use that phrase like i know this to be true and yet when i enter a setting where there's a complete disconnect with my environment people around me and i begin inventing conversations outcomes all of that doubt will eat away at my ability to hold my holy knowing and i will god I mean, I have a hundred examples of this, um, especially when I travel far, like when I'm in Armenia, I'm often having to go on a very deep instinct because I can't read. I can read street signs. I know directions. I know generally where I am when I'm there. But oftentimes I really have to rely on this in a bigger way because I don't trust the social cues I'm getting from people because I'm in a different culture. Right. and. Almost every time I come back, I have to say, I've never been turned away by my holy knowing. I have never been left in a bad situation. The times I've found myself in a bad situation where I've made a decision that I resent, I, you know, it makes me, you know, it makes me nutty afterwards or I, you know, it starts taking up all my time and attention. I get hot when I think about it. I, I can't focus on my other work. Those are the times when I'm like, okay, I really have to backtrack. To return back to what I know. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious because part of what you live and breathe and certainly teach is creative practice. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and consistent creative practice. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the women that I work with who have careers or families, um, lives that look good on paper. And yet we're feeling like there's something unfulfilling. You know, they're, they're wishing that there's like there's some box that's not being checked. And it's hard to, to figure out what that is because there's so much to be grateful for. I notice that in a lot of those conversations, Susie, women tell me, I don't feel like I get to be creative like they, they tell me how much they miss creative space. I used to dance or I used to paint or I used to journal or I used yeah. to garden and, or I used to have one woman who um, she loved to quilt and she stopped quilting because she's starting her, her business. And she told herself when she got her first client, she could start to quilt again. And her quilt, quilting equipment, her sewing machine sat in the corner of her office collecting dust. And every day she would look at it and it would make her feel worse because she hadn't earned the right to quilt. Right. She had she had decided that that would be the reward when she got the client. Right. And we had this whole conversation about what if you dared to quilt first? You know, what would happen? Right. And so I wonder, I'm curious in your in your experience working with yourself and with so many people, what is that connection between creative practice and tapping into your knowing? Is there some way that those two are related? They're absolutely related. That's your on ramp. To your holy knowing. Daily creative practice, whether you are quilting or sculpting, like Mary Oliver, let's just use her for an example. Talk about attention, right? Terry Tempest Williams talks about Mm. attention. And what you pay attention to will grow. And in that growing, say you show up for 15 minutes at your sewing machine. And all you do is cut squares of colored fabric. You have no expectation about the quilt. You only have this one square. And, and every day for 15 minutes, you know, with your coffee or whatever, sort of, I love libations, you know, I think that's <laughs> part. And, and you want to make it as sort of invitation, you know, 
welcoming as possible, you move those pieces of fabric around. And then maybe one day you pick a needle and you base them together. Like that, that little bit tells something to your psyche, tells something to your instinctual self that says, you're important. I'm listening. I'm here. Mary Oliver talks about taking dictation. You know, I am taking dictation in this, in these 15 minutes. I don't give a hoot about email, about my schedule, about, you know, all of the things that that we see as obstacles. And I'm only looking at these four or five pieces of fabric, or, or I'm only doodling on this blank page, or I'm only sipping tea and reading poetry, or I only am doing my, you know, my yoga breathing practice or whatever it is. And, and especially when you give yourself kind of a bookends of time, you don't have that overwhelming feeling like, well, I'm no longer a dancer because I'm running this business and, and I'm not a dancer anymore. So (laughs) who am I to be dancing? And, and this, I dealt with this so much when the kids were little. Because I never, I did not think of myself as a writer in those years. And yet I had already had this embedded journaling practice that I just knew enough to know that that was my lifeline to my serenity. And Jonathan was entirely behind me on that. And I had to get up really, really early to get up ahead of my kids. And there were plenty of times where I thought the laundry, lunch, dinner, the plans, cleaning up, taking a shower, all of those things were way more important than those pages. But they're not. None of that. Because? Because that practice is what grounds you in your holy knowing. Mm, And that everything you do from that time, you will have such a greater sense of your own interior orientation like ah I knew at one moment at 6 13 this morning what it felt like to feel grounded and centered sure of myself clear mind sure of what I wanted and now it's 10 15 and your day is chaotic and you've lost a few things and maybe you were late to drop the kids off at daycare and you've got to make a big decision before this 11 o'clock meeting and you cannot you know you, you what do you do you just take a breath you remember what you did at 613 and, and your body is like so ready to back you up on all of this. It's so willing. And yet our culture really wants us to forget that. That's, I mean, just think of all the ways that our natural smells are, you know, perfumed over. We right. Can't, I want to go back to one of your questions earlier. How do I know when I've, when I'm distrusting my body or when mm-hmm. I have a thing that I, characterizes fear sweat there's a certain smell of my perspiration and I hope this isn't too gross to talk about but it's a real thing for me like I'm in a meeting or I'm in the hallway of a conference where I'm teaching and someone approaches me and asks me something that's really inappropriate for the moment maybe I'm going to teach or I or I'm going to go read or something you know I'm about to be in public and I, there's, my body exudes this smell. It's like, oh my God, you are really not, you are not trusting what you came here to do. You're allowing this other situation to make you, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in fear. That's what that, right. that smell tells me. I'm really off course here. 
I hope I'm not wandering on this. No, you're not. You're coming full circle. Well, I'm also thinking about it purely from a biological point of view, but we know that when we're in a state of stress, that our body releases different hormones that come out through our perspiration. So it just so happens that you have an acute sense of of smell, right? That you can actually physically notice that. But this is what I'm so appreciating about this, Susie, is that every woman has different signals, Mm. And that you know yours, right? Because I've yeah. never heard somebody explain this signal. And I talk about this all the time with so many different women. And you know, every woman, there's some things that are relatively universal. The sense of contracting is, is a common one. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or feeling some tightness somewhere in the body, in your stomach, in your, you know, in your neck, your head. But, but everybody also has their, their own thing you know, that feels different. And so, yeah. and so I love freedom to, like, to be fully who you are right in this conversation and to be sharing that because somebody else is going to think oh well I have this weird thing too my weird thing looks like my left foot itches or whatever it is right like your taste in your mouth or yeah yeah yeah. you know there was a woman and I'll have to look it up because she was new to me um I just found a post she did recently and I'll I'll put a link to it in the show notes and I'm going to paraphrase what she said but she wrote this post about I stand up to the patriarchy by listening to my body Yes. And I stand, my act of resistance to white supremacy is listening to my body. Absolutely. And my act of resistance to listening to capitalism or being run by capitalism is listening to our body. And she went on to list all these different ways, yeah. all these different systems by which women have been taught to ignore our body or to feel shame or a need to hide our body. And within our body is so much wisdom that we talk about here in Messy Magnificent can be leveraged in a lot of areas, but particularly in reference to our career, especially when our mind is going round and round and round and we're not sure what direction we want to go. There's often something within our body that tells us what feels true or not. And so I'm curious for you, Susie, what if somebody's listening and they're thinking, okay, I want to have my holy knowing. (laughs) like I want to be able to sense within myself where might a person begin that process? Because I think so many of us, like you described, you know, you had this really this coming of age moment where you started to become aware of, mm-hmm. you know, the, the mixed messages we're getting out in the world, or it really wasn't mixed at all. The message is, if you're a woman, be quiet, don't make a, don't make a yeah. fuss, right? But you've got this other message within yourself that says, I want to live, I want to breathe, I want to be. So if you are somebody who hasn't had an opportunity to listen to your knowing in a long time, or maybe ever consciously as an adult woman, what's one example of where a person might begin to cultivate a creative practice? Like what's the, where's the first small dry rock? Like maybe not the highest dry rock. What's the first step? You and I both talk about preparation as an important tool. I don't know, maybe not tool isn't the right word, but it's an important moment. And say you are hungry for just like, I don't have time for anything big, but what if it was one moment? So what if you did something like set a vase of a flower and a little candle so that when you go in the morning to brush your teeth, take a shower and get ready for your day, you begin, it's, it begins with ritual, Carly. It begins with ritual. Yeah. It begins with I make this one place that stands for me as a reminder that I am made of the holy, I am of the holy, I am not separate, which is, we're already making a political statement right there. Right. I am not separate. I am not separate. I I am of the holy. And 
that little moment will begin to inch out and go from being this tiny little hydro, you know, little high little moment of a rock into a bigger space because then you'll remember maybe you put a letter from your sister that you want to read every day or you want to, you know, someone sends you a little poem and you print it out and you put it next to that candle and that little flower. When we permit ourselves those moments that allow us to take a breath and detach from the momentum that we feel driven by. You use that word driven women. And, you know, I, I have a sense so clearly of when I am being driven and when I'm driving mm-hmm. and when I'm able to take a step back from either of those states and, and put myself in first in a receptive mode, like I open and then I'm, I'm open to, to, to whatever direction will come from my holy knowing. I'm also open to what the world provides for me. Because like we, with our mandala practice, you know, you open yourself to nature, to the three rose petals that you just picked up. And then suddenly you see a bird feather. And then suddenly you see these shells or, or whatever it is. But when you, when you first listen to yourself, it allows your somehow, I don't know what the right verb is, but it puts you in this state of attentiveness. That's what it is, attention. And it really has a reverberating effect throughout your day. Throughout Absolutely. Your day. There's something brewing within me and we'll see if I can get the words because it's so big. I don't know if <laughs> you're inspiring something so big within me, Susie, about when you talk about, you know, this visual of, like you said, one little itty vase with a flower in it, you know, next to where you brush your teeth in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, as a, that as a focal point. And you talked about how that then allows your day to unfold in a different way. And as we're mentioning things, systems that have, have controlled women for a long time, I see how we as women have also inherited this idea that we must control things. We mm-hmm. are controlled and then we must control. Mm-hmm. I must control every detail of my day or else. Right. I must make sure that this PowerPoint is perfect or else. Right. Um, And so there's this sense of like white knuckle gripping the day. And no wonder we're exhausted by that. Like who can grip so hard? And so, you know, as as what you're talking about, it feels like spaciousness to me. This idea that for 30 seconds to wander outside and pick a dandelion and put it in a vase. Right. That that well, it only took 30 seconds in the day could open up. Mm-hmm. right? Ourselves to just feeling 3% or 5% or 1% more allowed in our own lives. Exactly. That attentiveness to ourself mm-hmm. before we begin tending to others right. sounds to me like a revolution. Yeah. And that it's not separate from our career, that no. this is part of it. When you, we, when you talk and I talk about, you know, laying the foundation, the preparation being just as important, you know, as the actual act that we're, that we're creating. And this idea that this isn't something that we'll get to later at the end of the day when the kids go down and we're exhausted. And then, then I'll read a book or then I'll do some poetry or then I'll stretch or do a workout video, right? This idea that the day begins with tending to ourselves. And you spoke about this as a mother, you know, that that meant for you having to get up early right. in order to do that because that was going to be the only moment. Right? right, and yet you did that because you knew the value of this foundational, this preparation work. 
And and I just want to say one thing about that, Carly, is what that does, you do for yourself, but that small step, whether it's your assistant at work who sees, gosh, she always has a little book of poetry next to her coffee. I wonder what that's about. Maybe I could do that. Or your partner. Oh, she really, you know, she that that space over there, I'm going to steer clear of that, or I'm going to put, you know, found this rose and I'll put it on there for her or myself. Or, you know, the, you begin to announce to the world in very subtle ways that I am included here. My full self is included. Whether or not the world includes you, I mean, I think this is something worth exploring because there's probably more language around this, but, you know, the acts, you know, the, the, the work that women have done for centuries has been so related to survival and the domestic the home. Mm-hmm. And the value that, that our society here, Western society, has put on those acts that are been primarily women, done by women is so low as to not be worthy of an income. So we have this, this ingrained learning that the, this small act is not really worth anything. It's, worth, it's worthless. I'm worthless. We reverse that every time we say, I really need to have this little card on my desk with this little vase right here. And that's, that's the start of my, my agency or I look you at just that set a space for yourself in the world. You're yeah. reminding me of like Nancy, when Nancy talked about creating a space for ourselves at the table, right? The Pulling table. up a chair at yeah. least, right? And then eventually maybe be sitting at the head of our own table. And what you're bringing forth reminds me of that, of saying, of inviting ourselves, not yeah. waiting for the invitation to arrive in the mail, no, but no, to no. say, I'm inviting myself to the conversation of this world or of my work. I am inviting myself to this moment. There is space for me here too. Right. Not, not in exclusion of anybody else, but, but for me also. No, the table is big enough. And he, That's he it, right? Nancy. But now I'm thinking of, have you ever seen Judy Chicago's dinner party, that art installation? No. Oh my gosh, Carly. Oh, oh no, I feel terrible as a teacher that I've never introduced you to this. This <laughs> is a really important piece of, it's, it, you know, it was really seen as this huge feminist statement when it first came out in the late, I think it was like the mid eighties, Judy Chicago, the dinner party. It's in the Sackler collection now at the Brooklyn art museum. And it is a dinner party. Literally. It's this triangular, huge, long, 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 long table of place settings that it's all art by women that Judy has designed. There's ceramic table, um, you know, ceramic, dishes, embroidered table covers, all of it's very symbolic, very, mm-hmm. you know, feminine imagery, very, and, and in some case, well, lots of the plates look like vulvas, let's just say that. Um, <laughs> but each place setting is, is, is reflective of a woman in history who has basically been erased from history or lightly referenced. And it's, it is really um, a lesson and women making room for other women at the table. And Judy has done this historically. She continues to do that work to this day. But that art installation is such a perfect metaphor for what you and Nancy were talking about. And, and for this idea of not only will I set a place for myself, it will be beautiful. 
Not only will I set a place for myself, but it will be beautiful. Oh, Susie, thank you for that. Tell me the name one more time of the art installation. It's it's called The Dinner Party. The Dinner Party. So we, we have two women. There's a number of people that work on this podcast that help in the creation process. And Sarah and Lauren are two of them. And they do the copywriting. They're the ones who actually write the show notes for the episode. So oh. we'll make sure that Sarah and Laura get to listen in and put a link to that in, in the show notes because I know I'm going to go Google that when, yeah. when we end this call. But that's it, Susie. It's what you just talked about is living with this idea of abundance, that there is room for all of us here. Mm-hmm. And that by us existing, not only does it not take away from anybody else, but that it actually gives invitation for other people to exist as well. So when you oh. gave the, the example of, so your assistant sees that you always, you know, have this flower on your desk right. or your, and this idea of, hmm, what is that? And it sounds to me like, like it's a sacred interruption in the day. We're going about our normal thing. And then there's this, oh, there's a little interruption that says, well, what's that? That's different, you know? And it's, so it's an opening again. So then this brings us kind of full, full circle back again, Susie, to this notion of, of the pivots that you're making within your business. So one of them being the backyard art camp, which we mentioned. And again, this was another thing where COVID's changed, right? What's possible. But you also needed to make decisions about this months ago before we even knew what the summer was going to look like. And so I would love to hear, like, let's, I love a specific example. So there's something about like looking behind the, the curtain of, of somebody else's business that teaches me so much. And oh, so yeah. how did you know, A, that it was time to make a change for Backyard Art Camp and B, what it might look like? How, how did you come to figure out what it could look like when you ask the question? So there's the, the moment, I think of your system here, something felt unsettled that needed to be settled. And then there was the, well, how could this be different question? So right. what did that look like for you? How did you know when it was time? And then how did it evolve into something else? So Backyard Art Camp had, is like my, it is the highest dry rock in my year. It is the moment in time when I gather with women here on this land, in this place, under this majestic oak tree. And my, you know, we're, where I get to really prepare and set it and set the place so beautifully for everyone and, and allow people to have this four day immersion in artistic practice. And the thought of not being able to do that, A, because if you look at the map, the COVID map of the US, the biggest red dot for the longest time has been in the Northeast and where we live in Massachusetts or where I live is very much a part of that red dot. And how could I imagine someone coming from Norway or from Texas or from, from Portland, Oregon to come here? That just didn't feel right at all. And secondly, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't imagine asking people to spend money on a program that would, would force them to take a risk that I couldn't assure any kind of positive outcome. Mm-hmm. I can't assure that the airlines will return your airfare. I can't assure that a hotel will refund your deposit. All of those things. And all of it felt prohibitive to me. And, and again, I had that body feeling like, oh, I cannot breathe around this. This just does not feel right. And I had this idea because I love camp. And camp has always been, Jonathan and I share that. We both worked at camp and when we were in high school and college. So we had this real affection for camp life and sort of hearty, a little bit dirty, not quite everything all clean and, you know, I mean, clean, but not 
a little messy and magnificent. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, we know I love mail art. We know the United States Postal Service needs us to do business with it. I could send people stuff. And I had to backtrack. What would be different was I could not send them the Coptic Stitch Journal thing. That just really gave me hives. I couldn't even, I couldn't even imagine that. And so I, you know, I could dial it back to a book, a book form that we could all work on and could be done with really clear instructions. It's a form that I've taught in Armenia. So I knew I could teach it with minimal language um, or, you know, minimal interaction it began to suddenly coalesce, like, like I described earlier, like, oh, that means I can do this. That means I can send them a poem from Rowan White. That means that I can send them a recipe from Janet Elsbach. That means that, like, all of these things began to sort of magnetize toward the potential. And then here's the key. I was talking to my son, Ben, and Benjamin is an incredible listener. And he I had some other word, name, description for what I was thinking about, that this camp, you know, you'd send something, and, and I, I can't remember, I can't even remember what the first name of it was. And he said, well, mom, what you're describing really is people can have camp at home. It's like you're sending camp in a care package. <laughs> you hit it on the nose. He has always, in, in my Armenian project, and so much of what I do when I, can run stuff by him. He just, yeah, I mean, both Ben and Catherine, but they all have a great sense of, you know why? It's because I'm so safe with him and with Catherine mm. and, and with you, Carly. I'm safe to veer off a little bit. I'm safe to make a mistake. I'm safe to just sort of postulate about something that might not really be what I want, but I can, I can kind of expand and be messy about something and then I'll put it together and it will begin to be the core thing. But if I'm, if I have um, support around me, which I know you do have people around me that allow me to kind of be messy first and then bring it in, I can make a good decision. So that's how Camp in a Care Package came to be. I love what you said, Susie, about it started to catalyze possibilities. When you looked at, okay, what, what could be different? And then again, like here you are. It really is like your patented method because then it's, well, okay, well, what are the parts of camp that really mattered to me? Right. Like, I love that they're learning a new skill. I love that there's a sense of, you know, being in your backyard or being outside, you know, and so you're looking at, well, how could I do that in a different way? And all of a sudden, there's all this new room. Like, to me, the word space feels like my takeaway word of this conversation, because again, and not trying to control the outcome and making it fit into the box it was, you know, traditionally in, there's now space for all these different possibilities of the way things could run or the way things could be done. And yeah. so you're, you know, I, I have this vision of you stepping on one dry rock, only being able to see the one, you know, the water's coming up and you can only see one and you step on that one and now you're a little bit higher and now you can see other rocks oh, that we exactly. couldn't see from a step down, right? Yeah. So we just take the first step and here are all these, these other rocks. Well, it changes your vantage point. Yeah. Yeah. By just, but with just the first one, whether that's the act of putting the dandelion near your toothbrush or if that's the act of, of sitting with yourself with a piece of paper and saying, okay, if this needs to be different, you know, what, what could that look like? For me on the receiving end, 
of watching camp change. What was really interesting for me is, you know, I, I get so excited about camp. I'm looking forward to it. I don't live in the Berkshires anymore. So the idea of coming back is so exciting. And the moment you told me that camp would be coming in a care package, I immediately felt at ease too. So on the receiving end of your decision, I felt like I am studying with a teacher who is holding the well-being of all of us students at heart and who is making a decision to keep us safe. And it allowed me, talk about, you know, the reason you and I can feel so safe to be messy together. It allowed me to feel more at ease. I don't need to plan for August because how the heck am I supposed to plan for August back in March when, when all this change is happening globally? I don't know where I'm going to be, right? This idea that you listening to your knowing also put me, you know, at ease. And, and to reflect what you shared at the beginning about the powder keg, when you listen to your knowing about needing to change that within your, your business for this moment of time, the feedback you got from participants, that they were able to really receive that and be with that. And so for that, I thank you, Susie, <laughs> so deeply. So before, before we let you go real quick, would you be up for doing the, the two-way Q&A? Oh, of course, of course. I forgot about and that. Already. This comes to us from a woman in her own right, Catherine Banksbaum, who happens to be Susie's daughter, who during the powder cake session, she asked this beautiful question. And so maybe we should start with that one. In honor of Catherine, we'll start with, with her question, which is, which is this, Susie. If you came with a warning label, what might it read? Okay. Remember, you know what it says on the back of mail delivery cars that aren't the, the United official United States postal vans? Mm-hmm. Makes frequent stops. <laughs> right? It would be makes makes frequent stops for beauty. Right? Love that. Makes frequent stops for beauty. Yeah. Because you do, you dare to pause on a regular basis. You, you do. Oh, okay. So what is one thing that might have felt like a mistake at the time that you're really thankful for now? Oh, gosh, Carly, there's so many. Ay, ay, ay. I mean, it depends on which chapter of my life you want to listen to, but it's definitely making time for myself and my practice. Mm. So much during my kids growing up, I missed things. I missed Catherine's 10th birthday. <laughs> it wasn't the best decision but what 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 flowed from the decision that I made on that day was excellent and and really paved the way for my kids to realize that they are the center of my life, but they are not the center of the world. And I'm a woman in the world. And I it really all the ways that we learn to work together and I learn to take space as a mother in this family and in this family in the dynamic of these humans, I afforded myself the same freedom and agency that I wanted them to have and that they do have. So you modeled for them what a lot of us haven't had modeled before, right? This idea that a woman could be a whole being, that she could be a mother and whatever else she wanted to be, right? Or she could not be a mother and be whatever else she wanted to be, but that she could exist on her own terms. Here we are existing on our own terms. Mm. So particular right now to this moment, like this moment today, Susie, as we're talking, what is just one thing that you know to be true, even if other people disagree? That a woman's life has value no matter what she's doing, no matter, no matter what she's making, that a woman is worthy. 
no matter what value she may or may not be creating. A woman is worthy. I heard Nancy talk about her title, Worthy, and I really sat with the definitions of worthy and value. For a long time, I talked about a woman's life having value. But, uh, you know, for years during my, when the years of my active motherhood, when I would get my social security report at the end of the year, and my, and my, my value was like, no, that was such a sour reminder to me of how my, how the society values motherhood. Mm. And I had to really renovate my understanding of my value. And I, and I really turned toward work because value is sort of monetized in some way. We use that right. word to reflect amount. Whereas worth is a, is a whole body knowing. I know I am worthy. And I know that women are worthy no matter what. Uh, there's so much richness in this conversation. I'm so glad this is recorded because this is what happens when Susie and I talk. And so this is why I was really excited to have you on the show. Because every time we talk, I think... Gosh, I wish we recorded that. I want to hear that again. Like, there's so much there for me. I want to take notes. Before you and I wrap here with one last question, specifically for the women listening, Susie, I want to point out to anyone that's hearing Susie speak, and if you're thinking, yes, like with a capital I or Y, <laughs> I want more dry rocks in my world, head on over to susiebanksbomb.com. I will put a link to that um, in the show notes. Or maybe... You want to join me this summer and women from all over the world in Susie's Camp in a Care Package program. This is the first time it's happening remotely as this kind of stay-at-home art retreat. And what I'm loving is that there are minimal Zoom sessions. So for those of us who are having Zoom fatigue, this is an opportunity for lush supplies and clear instructions to arrive on your doorstep. And she's got this bouquet of enclosures that really support daily creative practice. And I got to tell you, I've seen a small peek at some of the items Susie is putting in each care package, and I am literally counting the days until mine arrives. So if you want to come be a student with me, I'll put a link for where you can get the full scoop on camp and a care package in the show notes. And who knows, maybe you and I can both be tapping back into our personal knowings and creating in our own backyards together this summer. So as always on Messy and Magnificent, we consider every episode the beginning of a conversation, right? That we're having this lifelong conversation together. And so Susie, what's one question that you would love to ask a woman listening? What would you like to know based on our conversation today about her, that we might continue this conversation together? Where are you physically when you take that one inhale that makes you go, like, are you at the, at the soccer field and your kid is in a game and you turn to take a breath away from the crowd and you look up and you see the moon rising? Is it that moment? Or you're on the phone, you just got done with a conference call and you take a break, you look out the window and there you see a hawk fly right by. Like, I just want to know when you, listener, are almost surprised by your own magnificent attention when you allow yourself to be surprised. Because that is such a clue for what you want more of, you know? So where do you allow yourself to be surprised? Where are you caught in a moment of full attention? Right, and delight. 
like mm. like you, Carly Fame, making those mandalas, you know, every exactly. day when you're preparing to sell your house of like, you knew that that was a source of delight. You knew that that was a source of, of doing things, something differently. That was your number two point. You were doing something different. Yes, absolutely. And, and it really led you to this awareness of, wow, I can incorporate this and this actually has bearing and meaning in the rest of my life. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. So we want to hear from you and post it with a screenshot of this episode on, on social media or put a comment in iTunes and tell Susie and I, where are you or what are you doing? What's happening when you allow yourself to be surprised? to be delighted, to be in a state of wonder, because that is something worthy of, of paying attention to. Susie, thank you so much for being here. You remind me, like we say at the end of, of, of every episode, that we, we thrive through nourishment, not punishment. And may we all continue to pay attention to what we value, including ourselves, until we gather together again next week. Thank you, Susie. Big hug. thank you you for listening to the messy and magnificent podcast and being part of this dynamic life-giving community of women i consider each episode part of a lifelong conversation of you and me hanging out sipping tea together making sure that all women become richer more nourished and able to keep on rising So I'll see you on the next episode next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to head over to carlyfane.com forward slash podcast to get the full show notes. And I've also got some extra special free resources for driven women over there that you won't find anywhere else.